The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And I think when you see the rights of journalists being restricted, it undermines the broader uh, First Amendment protections that are at the heart of democracy. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 21st, 2023. Carolyn Cole, a Pulitzer Prize-winning staff photographer for the Los Angeles Times, has covered wars and other conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Israel, Kosovo, Liberia, Sudan, Nicaragua, Haiti, and the U.S.-Mexico border. Over the course of her 30-year career, she has been seriously injured on the job precisely once. When members of the Minnesota State Patrol pushed her over a retaining wall and pepper sprayed her so badly that her eyes were swollen shut. Cole was in Minneapolis in the summer of 2020 to cover the protests after the murder of George Floyd. She was wearing a flak jacket marked TV, a helmet, and carried press credentials at the time of her attack. Cole's story is not unique among the press corps. According to a new report out this week from the Knight First Amendment Institute called Covering Democracy, Protests, the Police, and the Press, in 2020 at least 129 journalists were arrested while covering social justice protests, and more than 400 suffered physical attacks, 80% of them at the hands of law enforcement. As Joel Simon, author of the report and former executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists' Rights, the presence of the media is essential to dissent. It is the oxygen that gives protests life. Media coverage is one of the primary mechanisms by which protesters' grievances and demands reach the broader public. I sat down with Joel, as well as Katie Glenn Bass, the research director of the Knight First Amendment Institute, to discuss the report, the long legacy of law enforcement attacks on journalists covering protests in America, who counts as the press in the eyes of the court, and what can be done to better ensure press freedom. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 21st, Protests, the Police, and the Press. So the Knight Institute has just released its new report called Covering Democracy, Protests, Police, and the Press. Um, Joel, I'd love to start with you as the report's author. If you could just set up the report for the listeners from a sort of very high-level view before we dive into the particulars. And also, if you could, to give a bit about the origin behind this report, you know, why, why write this report and why now? Yeah, well, absolutely. And it has a very specific uh, origin story, which is for uh, 20, I spent 25 years at the Committee to Protect Journalists, uh, 15 uh, as an executive director. And as it was preparing to step down and think about the the next thing, um, I had a conversation with Jamil Jaffer, who's the executive director of the Knight Institute. And he invited me to 
you know, join the Knight Institute as a research fellow. And he specifically said to me, you know, the Knight Institute is domestically focused. We're focused on uh, defending uh, First Amendment rights in the digital age. What do you see, based on your experience at the Committee to Protect Journalists, as the most essential threat to press freedom in the United States? And I thought about that for a while, and I talked to a lot of experts, and I talked to journalists I knew. And I went back to Jamil and I said, you know, maybe it's not what you might think. Maybe it's not the focus that we've had on, you know, legal rights and fighting subpoenas and platform policy. You know, if you talk to journalists around the country in their own communities, the primary threat uh, they face is the challenge of covering protests. And it's everywhere and it's pervasive. And we had a new source of data which helped us really understand the scope of the threat, which is something called the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which we had created in 2017. And so we had this rich resource of uh, documentation that allowed us to understand the full scope of the issue. And so um, that was the origin, and 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 I dove into the project and uh, you know spent a year talking to journalists, talking to experts, uh, talking to First Amendment scholars, looking at the data, and um, this report represents our conclusions. Yeah, and Katie, as you well know, um, the Knight Institute's mission is is protecting press freedom in the digital age, uh, but much of what is described here happens in the physical realm. I'm curious if you could describe, you know, the nature of attacks on journalists that are talked about in the report, um, what's being done to them over the past few years, and by whom. Sure. So I I think what the findings in the report show is that there are a couple of main categories of difficulties journalists are facing at protests. The most notable, which I think the report reflects, is that journalists are quite often, surprisingly often, targeted for attack um, by police officers during public protests. There are a number of incidents in the report and many more cataloged in the Press Freedom Tracker uh, where journalists who are clearly identifiable as journalists are targeted with less lethal munitions or physically pushed by police or their work is interfered with by a police officer while they're clearly in the act of recording and news gathering. So that's one category. And then there's a separate category, which is, um, you know, as we've seen over the years, Policing at protests has gotten more aggressive in a lot of ways, um, both in terms of the use of the of less lethal munitions and crowd control measures, but also kinds of tactics used for arrests. So one thing the report talks about is the practice of kettling, where police will just block off a broad area and everybody in that area, even if it's several hundred people, is detained and often everybody gets arrested and goes down to the station. And journalists get caught up in those kettles for hours on end and sometimes go down to the station and are arrested as well. Um, So that's a second category is journalists who are being um, caught up in these broader policing tactics that we think are unwise. And then there's also the report, I think, spends less time on this, but a number of journalists have noted that protesters, some protesters at least, are um, less happy to see journalists than they used to be. It used to be the case that most journalists welcomed the presence of the media um, as a way to get their message out. And I think now some journalists are observing that, you know, if not all protesters, some of them feel like the media is not necessarily going to be helpful to them, either because they can do that documentation on their own or because they don't trust the media. And that makes journalists job um, more difficult in a lot of different ways. And Tyler, if I could just jump in on, you know, kind of the question you asked about, you know, how what the intersection is between the digital and the physical realm. I mean, some of the changes that 
Katie described are a result of the transformation of the information landscape. I mean, the reason that protesters uh, welcomed journalists is because they were the primary means through which they could communicate their demands to a mass audience. And they understood that the presence of journalists was often uh, help protect them against uh, abuse uh, by the police, um, which obviously is a historic challenge. So, you know, the, the physical landscape has been transformed uh, by changes in the digital landscape. And the second area in which this has also manifested is, you know, and I did, I spent some time on this in the report, and it's a, it's a, it's a somewhat complicated issue, but the police are also, you know, also claim, and the journalists confirm that the kind of normative relationship, the, the relationship between police and journalists that was a kind of institutional relationship based on a kind of understanding of their of their particular functions, that's really broken down for a whole variety of reasons. But one thing that you hear, uh, you know, a, a refrain from the police is, you know, we can't tell who's a journalist when everyone has uh, a cell phone and is documenting what we're what we're doing. So the kind of normative structure where we had, okay, you're a journalist, we treat you in a certain way, you're a protester, we treat you in a different way, that's broken down. And so part of the, what the report examines is how do we rebuild a kind of legal and normative structure that allows journalists to play this essential role in, a, in an environment in which the physical realm has been transformed by the kind of digital revolution. Yeah, there, there are so many threads there that you just mentioned that I, I would love to follow. But first, I want to go back to the, the the focus of the report in protests, in protest coverage. I want to just tease out a, a bit more of, of why the, that focus, um, why it's so important to protect press freedom, uh, specifically in the coverage of protests. I think there's a, a dark irony at play here that you capture so well in the report when you write, Quote, it is precisely at the times when the right to assembly is being suppressed that the right to press freedom must be most scrupulously protected. Could you speak, uh, Joel, a bit more about, you know, this focus on especially protest coverage? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think my, my perspective is global. I mean, I ran the Committee to Protect Journalists, so I saw these issues play out in every country around the world. And, you know, street protest, you know, and, and, and assembly and the speech that, is a, that accompanies protest is, you know, one of the most essential safeguards that exist in any society. And people around the world assert this right at tremendous risk to their to their physical integrity. And so in the United States, these rights are protected by uh, the First Amendment. And the press plays a critical role in ensuring that the broader First Amendment protections are observed. They play a role by, uh, as I mentioned, communicating the demands of the protesters to the broader public, ensuring that it is part of the political debate. And they play an essential role in ensuring that the actions taken by public authorities to preserve public order are compatible with the fundamental rights uh, guaranteed in the First Amendment. So if you don't have the presence of, of journalists or, or people who serve a journalistic function at a public demonstration, then the rights that are being asserted are weakened. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's all a big, they're all connected. And I think when you see the rights of journalists being restricted, it undermines the broader First Amendment protections that are at the heart of democracy. 
Yeah, and before we go any further, it occurs to me that, you know, it might be good to define who is the press. Katie, you mentioned some of the tactics used against journalists um, documented in the report, like kettling. Um, but of course, these tactics are also used against protesters, uh, for example. So, you know, in these situations, uh, who counts as the press? And then as in a sort of addendum, um, does it really matter um, who's press and who's protester um, when it comes to uh, the rights that, you know, each party has during a protest? Yeah, this is one of the most important questions that the report addresses. So to begin with, I would say in most in most contexts during a protest, while a protest is ongoing, protesters and journalists, sort of anybody who is there, have the same First Amendment rights. They have the right to be there. They have the right to assemble and to peaceably express their grievances. Everybody also has the right to record, which is a really important um, First Amendment right that attaches to everyone, not only to journalists, you know, again, leaving aside for a moment the question of who is a journalist. A number of appellate courts have weighed in on this, and they've all said it's absolutely First Amendment protected activity to record police activity in public. Everybody has that right. The one place when trying to distinguish journalists from protesters or bystanders becomes really critical is in the context where a protest has been declared unlawful and people have been ordered to disperse or where a curfew order has come into place and also um, entails people needing to disperse. And in, in that case, the report argues that journalists should be permitted to remain on the scene. And often they are in the dispersal order, in the curfew order, they will specifically exempt journalists from having to comply. Um, But even where they don't, as a matter of policy, journalists should be allowed to remain so that they can document police activity in that time when they're trying to get people to leave. And in that situation, it does become important to um, offer some tools and offer some common sense approaches to determining who counts as a journalist in those circumstances. I mean, I think I think what's really important here is just what 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 a kind of common sense approach is required in these circumstances because it is true that um, you know journalism has changed and the nature of the profession has changed and who's exercising journalism and 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 in what capacity that's that's changed as well. So really, what we're asking the police to do when they have to make these distinctions is to apply a kind of functional test, which is who's engaging in journalism? How do you determine who's engaging in journalism? Well, do they have a press pass? Do they have distinctive clothing? Are they holding a large camera? Are they saying they are a journalist? Are they standing aside from the protesters and documenting what's happening? All of these behaviors are indicative of journalism and the police should consider them. And where there's doubt, because there are First Amendment rights that are implicated, they should presume that someone who affirms that they are a journalist is in fact a journalist and should allow them to continue to exercise uh, this role. And, and we think that, you know, the police often claim that this is an impossible task to differentiate uh, between journalists and, 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 and others who may be uh, present in these situations. Uh, We don't believe that's the case. And we think that this is a workable, common sense approach to addressing this this very important issue. Yeah, just to follow up on that last point of this common sort of police uh, refrain that uh, difficulty in distinguishing between the press and protesters, could you speak a little bit more about why you think that doesn't quite hold water um, and specifically, uh, you mentioned in your report an opinion 
written by Judge Wright in in Minnesota um, that speaks to this very point. Um, so if if you could just kind of tease out a bit more, you know, why that argument often doesn't really hold up. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think that one of the things you hear the police affirm is they say that the protesters are out there and they're pretending to be journalists and they're engaged, you know, in illegal conduct and they're 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 evading arrest by asserting that they 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 they're engaged in journalism. Uh, police often make this claim, and I spent a lot of time trying to uh, find examples of this kind of behavior. And I couldn't, I really found almost none. I found uh, a couple of examples in uh, a protest in Portland where some people who were, you know, clearly engaged in vandalism had, you know, taken duct tape and put press uh, on their helmets. And it was, <laughs> would have been easy for the police in these instances to, to understand that these were not journalists. So it, it can happen, but it happens very rarely. What the what actually happens at protests is that people who, you know, claim to be journalists are, in, are visibly engaged in journalism, are actually doing journalism and should be allowed to do so. And what's interesting is when the courts have tried to address this or when it's been addressed in a legislative context, this very question, who is a journalist and who is not a journalist? Uh, you mentioned uh, the case in uh, Minneapolis, Goyette versus a uh, city of Minneapolis. That was actually uh, resolved through a settlement. And there was another uh, case that took place in uh, federal court in Oregon, Index Newspapers versus uh, Oregon. And and there was also an effort to develop legislation in California that specifically addressed this issue of the journalists and their presence of protests. And in all three of these instances, they came to the same conclusion. When you try to figure out who's a journalist and who is not a journalist in these contexts, you need to use a functional test and the police need to apply a totality of the circumstances, and that police, when they engage in this exercise in good faith, have a high record of success. And so that's really the framework that we have to apply moving forward if we want to protect these rights. Just to build on what Joel just said, I think one thing that's important to note is that everybody, you know, the report author, everybody involved in in these questions, the judges all agree that if someone claims to be press, but is violating the law at a protest, police can take action against that person. They can arrest them. They can tell them to stop. Um, you know, they, they're still within their rights to do that. No one is arguing that if someone claims to be press, they are therefore untouchable. But as Joel was saying, you know, he spent a lot of time trying to find examples um, where this was happening, where police were having difficulty determining who was a journalist or people were claiming to be journalists, um, but were not in fact and there was not, there, there's just not a lot of evidence out there. And the judges, um, both in the Minneapolis case and in the Index Newspapers case out of Portland, you know, made specific note of that in their opinions. And, um, you know, the, the case you were referencing, Tyler, Judge Wright, in the Minnesota case, noted in her um, opinion that rather than an inability to identify members of the press, the record reflects many instances of law enforcement officers willfully disregarding the relevant identifiers. This demonstrates a problem of compliance, not a problem of clarity. And in the index newspapers case, the judge in that case also said, you know, there's there's some information in the record that suggests that some people had marked themselves as press and it was not clear that they actually were, but there is not a lot of evidence that those people were engaging in unlawful behavior. What you do see is a lot of targeted actions taken against people who are clearly identifiable as journalists. 
Yeah, thank you for that. And I would also encourage listeners to go toward the end of the report when um, there's a full list of recommendations to to journalists, to police departments, to the Justice Department, um, and so forth. But first, I wanted to get a bit of historical context. Um, so I think one thing that the report does so well is to put this in perspective of uh, the relationship between the press and the police. Going back to the civil rights movement, for example, one of the chapters is called From Little Rock to Ferguson. So Joel, I wonder if you could talk about this relationship historically um, from that period. Um, Has it ever been a good or respectful relationship? And how might this trend have changed in recent years? I think you've attributed a few things to to maybe an uptick in, you know, violations of press freedom. But, you know, what do you attribute that those changes to? So, yeah, I mean, when I started this project, I was aware of a seminal book that had been written by Gene Roberts, uh, the uh, former Philadelphia Inquirer editor, New York Times editor, and uh, Hank Klibanoff uh, called The Race Beat that documented the experience of journalists who had covered the civil rights protests in the South. And when I read that book many years ago, again, in my CPJ role, I was just struck by how uh, how much a part of our recent history, the same kinds of challenges that journalists face frequently in authoritarian countries were were being faced by journalists uh, covering the civil rights movement in the South of the United States. You know, these included uh, targeted attacks carried out by police. Uh, it included attacks carried out by protesters and counter-protesters who um, supported segregation and they were exceedingly violent, these attacks. They were, they were, and they were systematic. So it was clear to me that, you know, this was a historic challenge, the challenge that we, you know, are, were, were focused on in the report and that we saw it recur, you know, in many instances, uh, including Ferguson. Uh, Katie actually did a, did an excellent report a number of years ago looking at, at, at incidents that occurred. Uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, when protests broke out there in relation to the Occupy movement. And, you know, my conclusion looking at the historical record was, and, the, you know, you talk to, you also talk to journalists who, 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 who have worked, you know, covering protests over many years, and they'll describe interactions with the police, which were quite cordial. They'll say, well, the police, you know, understood our role. They, they knew us because maybe we were covering communities that we were a part of and we were regular police reporters, so they knew who we were. They had relationships with the news organizations we worked for, um, and they allowed us to do our job and they, you know, cut, you know, they, they gave us the room we needed to do it, even perhaps even let us behind police lines when the, the skirmish line when they were, you know, uh, using crowd control measures. So I heard a lot of stories like that as well. But basically what it comes down to is these, the ways in which journalists covered protests, really they operated at the discretion of the police. And if the police had an institutional relationship with local media, or they felt in a particular context that they would allow the media to cover protests, then they could. And that happened pretty frequently. And when the institutional relationship broke down, and the social relationships broke down, there was often widespread and, and systematic violence uh, directed against the, the, the press that interfered with their ability to cover protests. And, and the reason for this and the focus of the report is that the law itself was unsettled. We think that uh, journalists have covered protests throughout recent American history because of strong constitutional protections. But in reality, it was because of the normative relationship between the police and 
the, the press in many of these communities. And as I described, those relationships have broken down because of the transformation of the information environment, the, the lack of local media that, that in many of these communities. So there isn't a pre-existing relationship, the growing you know, hostility and more toward, sometimes by the protesters towards the police, more aggressive crowd control measures. And, you know, a sense in the media that the police, which were once an authoritative source or, or in some segments of the media, are no longer perceived that way. And a sense on the part of the police that the media, which they felt once covered them fairly, no longer does so and no longer represents uh, their perspective. So there are a whole variety of factors you throw. Uh, you throw the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 into the mix. You throw Trump's inflammatory rhetoric into the mix. And you have the explosive situation we saw throughout 2020 when 129 journalists were arrested or detained throughout the United States while covering those protests. And hundreds were attacked. And 80% of those attacks, according to the uh, the data uh, compiled by the uh, Press Freedom Tracker were attributable to the police. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, and I think one episode described in the report that illustrates especially how inflammatory rhetoric, perhaps from the president at that time being former President Trump, can have this sort of ripple effect down to these local departments and their interaction with with reporters on the ground. Um, in the Minneapolis case, uh, the report tells the story of Mike Shum, who mentioned that right after President Trump had tweeted about uh, standing with the military and and telling Governor Tim Waltz that the military was on the way, that that was the point that that Shum felt that things had changed on the ground and that that quote law enforcement turned on the media. Um, could you speak a bit a bit about Mike Shum and his experience? And, and how, you know, this connection between rhetoric from the top, sowing distrust in the media could then have real consequences on the ground. Um, Katie, we can turn back to you. In terms of, you know, rhetoric and its impact on the ground, I think, you know, what Joel said a moment ago really sets it up. You have this extremely volatile mix of people who are justifiably very angry um, and who are out on the streets protesting. You have a president who, you know, has been systematically vilifying the media expressing support for the police and military, talking about deploying the military on the streets. I think there was also a famous tweet about when the looting starts, the shooting starts, um, you know, making the situation worse. Uh, And then you have the situation on the ground where you have police coming out in very heavy, heavy riot gear, you know, with armored vehicles behind them. 
setting up a situation that seems very confrontational and very threatening and very angry. And I think that that just creates a very dangerous and tense situation that makes it hard for anyone to engage in any sort of dialogue or de-escalatory tactics. Yeah. And I just, you know, to, to just add to that, I mean, I think that was absolutely the dynamic that, you know, Mike Shum, who was really one of the first uh, um, journalists on the scene uh, after the uh, George Floyd murder, you know, or, or national journalists on the scene in any case, because he he happened to be in uh, the Twin Cities working on a, an, another assignment. And he, you know, and, and he, when he first sort of got out there and started uh, documenting the response to the murder, the Floyd murder, he told me that his primary concern were the protesters themselves who were, who were understandably extremely upset and agitated and angry and, you know, didn't necessarily appreciate the presence of, you know, somebody trying to film them. And he, you know, he had some confrontations. He was concerned about his safety and he wasn't that concerned about the police. And then that dynamic shifted over the course of the next couple of days. Um, it shifted because the crowds grew and the police, you know, felt uh, besieged. And then there was a, um, a police precinct was was overrun and 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 burned. And, and so, you know, the police themselves felt under threat. And then, you know, at a point in which, you know, it would have been possible perhaps to dial down the rhetoric and try and de-escalate. That, of course, is when Trump jumped in and put a lot of pressure on local authorities to take a more aggressive response. And then that was reflected in the dynamic on the streets where you saw uh, basically what were in, in, you know, in, in Minnesota called the state patrol. They're, you know, like state troopers that were, were called in and they used a much more aggressive strategy uh, much more aggressive crowd control measures. That's when we saw uh, Omar Jimenez being arrested on live television. Mike Shum and other journalists I spoke with said the dynamic really changed quickly. They documented instances in which they were targeted by the police uh, deliberately. There was a, a very dramatic incident um, the following day in which a police line imposing uh, a curfew overran a group of about 20 journalists, some of the most prominent, uh, some of, many of them had covered international conflicts from around the world. They had cameras and press passes and were highly visible, were standing apart, and yet they were, they were you know, assaulted and many of them badly injured. And uh, from that point on, the climate, you know, in, in terms of the ability, you know, even even as the police were uh, deploying massive force uh, against protests and imposing a curfew, you know, the ability of journalists to document their actions at a time, again, when there is very little accountability and oversight was deeply compromised by these kinds of aggressive tactics. As you chronicle well in the report, since at least the civil rights movement, um, these instances of, of violations of press freedom, uh, journalists often don't take that sitting down, so to speak. They've, you know, filed suits, they've taken legal action, often with success, you know, leading to uh, greater press protections, uh, greater protections of, of freedom of speech. Um, and 2020, since then, it has been no different. I think you cite uh, in the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker that at least 50 civil cases have been brought by journalists since the 2020 protests. Katie, could you talk a bit about some of these more significant ones um, that have, you know, either been been settled and 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 what the upshot is? We mentioned so far um, Goyette versus the city of Minneapolis. We we mentioned index newspapers. Could you give a bit more context about these cases and and what has sort of occurred since then? Sure. So, I mean, both of those cases, Goyette and Index Newspapers, were class action lawsuits um, in which the ACLU, I believe, was the 
uh, plaintiff attorneys filing on behalf of a large group of journalists, including freelancers, and in some cases also um, legal observers who play a slightly different role at protests, but going to a judge asking for a temporary restraining order and then later a preliminary injunction against the police who are operating at protests saying, please you know, tell them they have to stop attacking as they have to stop interfering with our ability to do our job. Um, and in both cases, they got favorable responses from the judge and the preliminary injunctions were put into place although not always followed to the letter. And then um, what happened later on is that the cases go to a settlement where there is a more permanent agreement hammered out. It's usually called a monitored injunction where the police representatives say, okay, we we will do the following. And the um, plaintiffs, the, the class that is bringing the action says that we will, you know, we'll agree by these terms. And then they sign the agreement. And that is supposed to be sort of the, the rule going forward when these protests continue, although you can go back to the court if you feel that one party is not complying going forward. So one thing I would note about sort of the the process you just noted there where journalists, you know, file suit and then get a favorable order and have some success. That's true. It is true that generally um, journalists prevail in these cases because the, the First Amendment rights are pretty clearly established and the police conduct is often fairly egregious. But I, I just want to underscore that it's this is such a stupid and inefficient and really expensive way to deal with this problem when training the police more adequately and ensuring accountability for police who refuse to respect the First Amendment rights of protesters would be a more efficient way to go about this. For journalists, um, you know, you have to be able to participate in a lawsuit. If you have a newsroom backing you, that's easier. If you're a freelancer, that may be much more of a challenge. And then, you know, you have to go through this whole court process and hopefully the ACLU or a, a similar nonprofit organization can back you up there. But it's it's a long and expensive and, and quite grueling process in some cases. Um, and then at the end of it, you know, you have a settlement and you have to keep you know, going back to the judge, if the police are not complying with that settlement, then you have sort of on on the other end of the tunnel, like after a protest movement or situation or period of protest has calmed down, you often see a fresh wave of lawsuits against the police, against the city for violations of protesters and journalists' rights during the protests. And those are often also successful. They settle for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes over a million dollars, which is taxpayer money that goes to pay for these civil rights violations. And so in in a sense, you could say the system works because the judiciary is standing up for our rights. But in another sense, you could say, this is really an absurd way to handle this problem. Um, there's, you know, there's got to be a better way to address this. Joel, did you want to add anything about these these cases? Yeah, I did. I I, I did. I mean, I I fully agree with uh, Katie. And by, and by the way, I misidentified the index case. It's Index v. City of Portland earlier on. But I I, to, I, I fully agree. I mean, there despite the successes, um, you know, when you talk to the journalists themselves who pursued uh, these kinds of cases. Many of them express frustration. They express frustration about how long uh, they take. They express frustration that they, you know, maybe they get a little some sort of compensation, uh, but they don't see any structural change. Uh, the one thing I will say that came came out of the um, Goyette settlement was uh, mandated training for uh, the Minnesota uh, State Patrol. And one of the people who has been contracted to carry out that training is the 
general counsel for the National Press Photographers Association, somebody named Misty, Mickey Osterreicher, who I quote extensively in the report, and has been a leader in this area. And I talked to him about, you know, how the, how that training has gone. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's someone who's, you know, his job is to defend uh, photographers. He's a journalist himself. He's also um, a deputy sheriff in um, the uh, Erie County, Buffalo, where he lives. So he understands the perspective of, of law enforcement, but he's you know, really going in there with a strong First Amendment perspective. And he told me something that I found a bit surprising, given the context that we've just provided, which is that he found that the rank and file officers who he was training despite their conduct during the protests, were quite receptive to this, this framing. And, and, and he, he emerged feeling that it was productive and positive. And yet he's really struggled to find other police departments that will engage him. And, uh, I, I, and I think this is really makes the point that you know, widespread training, widespread investment in ensuring that these First Amendment principles are taught in police academies, are reinforced through regular training with police departments uh, throughout the country, potentially could have a meaningful impact. It's certainly worth trying. And it is a lot less uh, expensive and potentially more productive than allowing these situations to be resolved to the extent that they are, uh, through litigation. Let's talk about a hypothetical here. If these sorts of attacks on the press covering protests continue to happen, what, what sort of effect might that have on, on journalists, on the press as a whole, and, and even civil discourse and, and accountability? Katie, we can go back to you for this one. Sure. I mean, I, um, I, I, I regret to say it, but I do think we'll see more of these attacks. Um, you know, given the the historical context that we've gone into before. Um, one thing that I worry about a lot that is borne out in the interviews that Joel did with journalists for this is that journalists may become more reluctant to cover public protests. You know, on the whole, journalists are a, a very brave lot, and they don't expect to be treated with kid gloves when they're out there um, on the scene covering a protest. But, um, you know, there's there's a big difference between accepting that something may happen to you while you're doing your job because you're incidentally, you know, um, you're caught up in something that you weren't expecting and having to go out into a scene where you know you may be targeted by police because of what you're doing, because you have a camera, because you have a press pass or clothing marking you as press. Those are different propositions. Those are, those are different risk factors. And I do worry that, um, journalists might become reluctant in some cases to cover these protests. And, um, you know, as we've discussed, press coverage of protests is really crucial, both for helping amplify the voices of protesters and their demands, um, but also for documenting the behavior of the people who are policing the protests. You know, it's recordings have been pretty essential to most of the conversations we've been having about um, police accountability, police reform, excessive force, things like that. You really, you want documentation of what's going on on the scene. So they, they play an essential role there. Joel, I want to turn back to you for some of the recommendations or proposed solutions. Um, we've already mentioned this requiring or recommending police adopt this presumption of journalism when um, interacting with potential members of the press during protests. You mentioned earlier deepening uh, engagement between local journalists and local police departments. What are some other solutions or recommendations you've included in the report and you know, on the on the flip side of that, what are what are some limitations? Um, I think there's some discussion about the limitations and merits of 
press credentialing, for example? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really good place to start. I mean, I think the reason that we're really leaning into this, you know, uh, functional test and the presumption of journalism standard, which I, which I think is the, the really the primary uh, recommendation that emerges certainly from 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 my experience, the, the one that I think, you know, would have the most sort of potentially transformative effect. And and you know, just to 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 reiterate you know, Katie's point about what's at stake is, you know, this, you know, what's at stake here is, you know, the integrity of American democracy. I mean, I don't want to be uh, grandiose, but, you know, these are, these are First Amendment rights that are, you know, at play here. And so, you know, the ability of journalists to carry out their function in this context is, as we've already discussed, critical to the full exercise and enjoyment of the broader First Amendment protections that are at the heart of American democracy. So, uh, you know, we're not we're not fooling around here. There's a there, there's a there's a lot in play. And, you know, the credentialing process kind of reflects the, the kind of previous structures that I discussed in which the police really got to choose. You know, you're a journalist and you're not a journalist. You're entitled to certain considerations and you are not uh, based on criteria that the police themselves uh, apply. And, you know, again, that I, I don't think it worked perfectly, but it worked adequately in an environment in which, you know, uh, journalism was represented by strong institutions and there, there were relationships between the police and these, these media institutions. And that's just not the, the structure of the media today. So, you know, we, there's actually some academic research that indicates that, very few police departments in the country are still uh, using credentialing because, you know, they struggle applying this outdated model to make appropriate judgments about who's entitled to these uh, credentials. And so they, you know, moved away from it. And journalists themselves are, you know, uncomfortable in many instances with, 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 with the police making these determinations. And by the way, many journalists are quite comfortable wearing credentials. They just don't want those credentials necessarily to be provided by, by the police. So I, I really think that, you know, that's really at the heart of what we're trying to do in this report is come up with a framework for redefining this relationship that is about the way that police, the media, and protesters interact in the physical space, but is a reflection of the new, of the kind of the way information, the information environment has been transformed by technology, and the way the media and journalists themselves and those being covered by the media engage uh, with each other and, uh, you know, I think, I think that's really the, the, the kind of most essential step that, that we can take to protect these rights. And I, and I want to say, you know, Katie was one of the people involved in developing, along with other people at the, the Knight Institute, and, and the full recommendations that can, I think, speak about some of the other recommendations that we put forward. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, as, as noted, the, I think capstone recommendation here is this sort of common sense approach, presumption of journalism. Um, if someone appears to be engaged in journalism based on observable evidence, like what they're wearing, what they're carrying, what they're doing at the protest, then assume they're a journalist and act accordingly. But we also tried to provide recommendations for a lot of the other stakeholders involved in this, because I think there are helpful roles that a number of other um, institutions or individuals can play here. So, for example, news industry organizations or journalists, professional organizations 
organizations can often be really great here. You know, they played a key role in the um, California law that was passed that's included in the report. Um, and they can do a lot to, um, you know, offer training. They can offer training to police. They can also offer trainings to journalists who are covering protests to, you know, help them understand the shifting environment out there and ways to protect themselves. They can be the ones to operate credentialing processes so that if you want a credential, you can go get one, including if you're a freelancer, um, leaving it up to the journalist to decide what they want to do. Um, newsrooms, the leaders of newsrooms can do a lot of this stuff as well, sort of preparing their their employees, their reporters, reaching out to police, offering credentials. Um, and then there's there's two other stakeholders I want to mention. One is state legislatures. So um, one way to firm up some of these protections is for state legislatures to codify some of these protections into law more specifically. So, um, you know, they could pass a law saying that police have to actively work to ensure that journalists can do their jobs at protests unhindered. They can follow California's example and codify into law journalists' exemption from curfew orders or dispersal orders that are given at protests that, you know, formally allows them to remain on the scene after orders like that are put out. Um, And then moving up to an even higher level, there's the Department of Justice, which sometimes opens what are called pattern of practice investigations into police departments where it seems like there is a consistent pattern of misconduct. And so we've encouraged them to include looking at mistreatment of journalists as part of those investigations and then publishing their findings there. And I would love to give each of you both a final word before we wrap up here. Um, So Joel, I'll I'll go to you first. You mentioned a bit a moment ago, but what do you hope to accomplish with this report? What do you hope readers will take away after going through it? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, I think there's a a real lack of awareness. Um, And so fundamentally, I hope that there's a broader and more informed discussion about this historic challenge. And, uh, and a recognition that in a polarized, you know, uh, a political environment in which, you know, and, and, and the beginning of, a, of, a, of an election season, this is going, we're going to see more protests and we're going to see a, a need to cover those protests. And so, and, and we've already, you know, talked about the stakes here and, and they could not be higher. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, is when, for those who look at this problem, I, I, I observed a tendency at times, particularly the police, uh, who, who I don't always think uh, when, they, when they raise these concerns are uh, doing so in good faith. You know, the, the notion that we can throw up our hands and say, well, this problem is just too difficult to solve. I, I, don't, I don't think that's acceptable. I think that when, you know, courts have looked at this, they've said this is the First Amendment is implicated. There are First Amendment considerations here, and the police have an obligation to develop processes and protocols that ensure um, that these fundamental rights are protected and that journalists are able to do their job without facing arrest and, and violent attack. And the other thing that's clear is there is a framework, a workable framework that can help us at least advance a discussion about how how to achieve this? So I think I think the two things that I really love people to come away with is one, this is a significant problem, and two, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult situation. But there are solutions that we haven't tried. Uh, that there's evidence that they could be effective, and so let's prioritize the solutions and uh, ensure that journalists are able to play this essential role. 
And finally, Katie, back to you. What's your hope with this report? Sure. I mean, similar to Joel, I would say one of the things that worries me most is that um, it has become so common for protests to see a violent response. It's become so common for journalists to be arrested or um, physically injured covering protests that I really worry it's becoming normalized that, you know, people see these, these scenes and this coverage and, you know, that's just what a protest is because that's the way it looks every time. Um, and it's really not normal and it really doesn't have to be that way. There are better ways to deal with these problems. There are common sense approaches that would help a lot. There are trainings that would help a lot. And there are police officers, both current and former who are, um, who agree with that and who are, you know, able to provide the voices saying, look, yes, it's absolutely possible for police with adequate training to distinguish between protesters and journalists. It's absolutely possible to put these things into play. There are, there are better sensible ways to handle this um, that would better protect the rights of protesters and the rights of journalists. I think that note of possibility and promise is a good one to end on. Um, The report is Covering Democracy, Protests, Police, and the Press from the Knight First Amendment Institute. Katie and Joel, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you so much for having us. Really enjoyed the conversation. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.